Acts 20, Part 2, from the sermon series, Acts of the Holy Spirit, spoken by Pastor Dan Bailey. Good morning, Metro. I am so honored to be able to bring you the word this morning and uh, to be a part of this church family and, and all that it entails, this mission that we have in the world and to grow together. I'm just so glad it wasn't last week, though. Uh, I was really hobbled up, uh, struggling to get around, because two weeks ago, I had made the mistake, uh, it, just a passing remark over lunch with Pastor Peter, that I really want to get in shape. <laughs> he means so well, he's so, it's hard not to get caught up in his enthusiasm. So before those words were out of my mouth, I was signed up for some CrossFit craziness. <laughs> Uh, nah, from Metro Kids was lapping me as we did one of the things, a lap around the house. You know when a car goes past you really fast and it's yell, somebody's yelling out the window at you as you're walking, it was kind of like that. You know, keep going, Pastor Dan. <laughs> Before I could breathe, and she was around the corner, so I just didn't even bother saying thank you. <laughs> but I'm feeling better today, I'm just a little wiser. Uh, Go slow, it's going to take me more than a couple weeks to ever dunk a basketball again. So, some of you are afraid to laugh, never done that in my life, so. It's a blessing to be here. I want to talk to you about um, something dear to my heart. My journey in life has been, of course, we all begin in grace, but it's how we continue also. And the discovery of the grandeur of God's grace, that word's become somewhat overused, commonplace, uh, abused in some cases, and I hope today that God will redeem the depth of that word for us, that it would be rich and, and transforming for your life today. Before we, I begin, and I've entitled the sermon uh, after trying to figure out, that's always the hardest part, I don't know, but I think it's simply, the best way to put it is don't try harder, draw nearer. So before we pray, uh, it's important uh, as a former basketball coach, you know, we used to call a good pass when you throw it to your teammate, on time, on target. And I want you to know today that God has a word for you that is on time and it's on target. He knows just when we need to receive it and it's always precision-like. And so it's important also though, I, I've seen a lot of basketballs bounce off some of my players' heads because they weren't expecting and uh, their hands weren't in a posture of reception. So would you this morning as you pray, just open your heart with expectation to what God might want to say to you. It may be somewhat unrelated to even my message, but if it's God speaking, that's, that's what the whole idea is. And that you would be, even with palms open, uh, sometimes the physical gesture kind of gets us to think properly about what it is. Because everything about us is received. So God as our initiator, we're the ones in a response mode. So will you pray with me? Father, as we share this time together, I pray that your word would land just where it needs to land. That you would cut away the chaff or anything that's unnecessary but Lord, your specific word, your word that is living, that we would take it in and that it would bear fruit in our lives, that our hearts would become thrilled, so full and consumed with love as we will read about in 
the Apostle Paul's life, that we would bear the fruit of your likeness and not even know how, except that we've grown deeper with you. And so give this to us, Lord. Help us as your church. Thank you for how you've blessed this fellowship and that your love for this church is greater for even our love for one another, but your agape love at work in us would flow to one another and to this community and beyond. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Final words carry a lot of weight, great weight. Graduation speeches, retirement ceremonies, or any significant goodbye at all provide unique moments of reflection that bring an extraordinary clarity to what really matters. Whether they're spoken with a twinge of regret or a deep sense of satisfaction, in all those cases and in between, what really is valued in life comes through loud and clear. We saw, we had that moment here recently on a Goodbye Sunday with Pastor Kevin, my predecessor, who uh, invested in me for the short month, although uh, you all here had longer time with him, but what a picture it was to watch this congregation stand and applaud uh, Pastor Kevin and Linda for people that ran their race well while they were here in this season of their life. Picture paints a thousand words, and for me, it was a powerful image and a reminder of what really, really matters in life. In my family unit, I've had the blessing, some would say, well, that's kind of sad what I'm about to say, but uh, I was the one in my family, among my siblings anyway, that got to hear last words. I know we can't control that sometimes. The last words of my mother, my father, and my brother, John, over a little over a year ago. Um, all of those cases were powerful. I think there might be a slide of my mom and dad. I don't know if it's, uh, there they are. Uh, that's where I get my good looks. <laughs> and uh, you really laughed at that one. <laughs> a little more than I was hoping, but that's okay. <laughs> From my, my father, it wasn't so much what he said, it was just the way we, we knew, he knew the end was near. Um, he had ministered almost up to the finish of his life, died at home. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better way to go, but it's the way he prayed. He just prayed as if he had one foot firmly planted there, and he was a man that lived in light of eternity. So it was just what he was reaching for. With my mother, it was a little tougher. She had this beautiful smile and face. She's a tough West Virginia lady. I mean, she didn't play. I mean, she had raised her younger siblings because her father passed away when she was young. Uh, in a coal mining accident, so she really had to learn to be an adult quick. But I don't know, if you didn't know that about her, you thought she was raised in a palace. I mean, we had the fine china out, everything she did had such eloquence. So to see her suffer with dementia was difficult. But in the week that I traveled there, knowing her days were numbered, uh, and the last day I was there, she had this unusual clarity come over her face. We sat her up in the hospital bed, and she was back for a two-hour period. I got so excited, I texted my siblings that mom's back. She's going to be bossing us around again. She's back. But it was just a short window that God gave me. And I was able to share with her things that God was doing in my life that I wanted to, her to know so badly, but was unable to share for many months. And all she kept saying to me during that time, repeating, I mean, she said other things, but the re common refrain was, he's worth it. He's worth it. He's so worth it. And she just glowed and twinkled when she said it. As she looked past me sometimes out a window, 
And that was a brief moment. With my brother John, it was sudden. Didn't know this was going to happen. And I went to speak there on a Saturday, uh, men's breakfast, and it was a great day. And we had this unusual time. He has seven kids. One of his children here today, uh, Esther, is here. I'm so glad she could join. Um, love, love that girl. Getting married soon. Um, but in that moment, we had three hours of uninterrupted time together afterwards, just two middle-aged men in lounge chairs. But I was at a crossroads in my professional life because I knew my job was soon coming to an end with the closing of the uh, campus at Nyack College. I didn't know when, but I knew it was coming. And yet for years, God was building me up. I mean, it was a decade process, but he was building me up in the last five years have been even while I worked, ministry opportunities that I never asked for. They just kept coming to me, and I kept stepping in because it was just what God was doing. And, but at that crossroads, when you don't really want to be at a crossroads in life, you know, who, who really loves change? I mean, it's nice to change the furniture, color, you know, paint, something like that. Like, oh, it's so nice, and then you're bored again. But real change is hard. But it's also how we grow, right? And so, but in that moment, my brother was never one to enforce an opinion on you. He was very careful with that. He never wanted to take the place of God. And I love how Pastor Peter and the staff here, their humility, that they're always in a posture of listening, responding, not dictating. Because power and authority, anything in leadership can so easily be abused. It's the hardest thing to deal with. And they have surrounded themselves and learned how to surround themselves with people in their life as we all need. But in that moment, my brother kind of stepped into a more authoritative role and says, Dan, God has done a work in you. You're able to articulate things about the grace of God that others can't see because you were in, you saw the abyss. You were there. Don't stop now. Go further. And you can just imagine how that informed my decisions. That was over a year ago. And here I am today. In our text today, Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is giving a farewell to dear friends. We've seen the Apostle Paul as the evangelist, a pretty intense guy, but here he is in a different kind of setting with people he really loves, people he's mentored, coached, built up, done life with. You know that kind of bond you have when you've journeyed in something? And only you two or you in that group can really understand it. I've seen that with teams and, and where you don't really need words. You just kind of get it. And this is that kind of setting. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. And he's trying to get there in time for Pentecost. So while he's traveling this trade ship, there's lots of stops. And he doesn't want to go to Ephesus because he would get consumed by, of course, all the people there. And it could delay his trip take time away. So he gets word ahead to these Ephesian elders, his friends, and asks them to meet him in Miletus, which is a 20-mile journey, uh, a neighboring town of Ephesus. And this is where our story picks up, where Paul, in the midst of trying to get somewhere that's important, wants to stop and give some last words to some of his dearest friends. So in Acts 20, Beginning with chapter 17, our story picks up. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, 
You know how I've lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of, the whole, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now, I commit, to you, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. You can almost see the passion or feel the passion of this chapter or this text. They're following him to the boat, like trying to get every last word, every last minute. Anybody had a goodbye like that? Pastor Kevin had one when he packed the truck. There was a group of 15 people, many hands make light work. The truck was packed like that, and Kevin seems to have a lot of precision to him, so it was like perfectly packed. I don't even, never seen anything like it. And while they circled up and prayed and the eight last amen was said, nobody moved. Nobody left until he said, please go. I don't want you to watch us drive off in the truck. We'd like to clean up, regroup before we drive to Chicago. So then everybody laughed and we moved on. But this is what's happening here. There's sadness. But Paul is deeply satisfied. There's no blood on his hands. That's just an ancient way of saying no regrets. He had left it all in the field and in verse 18 and 19, when he says, it almost appears like he's drawing attention to himself about his great commitment, you know, the humble brag type of thing. When he says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you, with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing. But this is not Paul highlighting himself. This is Paul highlighting the value of what it was that would drive him and draw him 
and compel him to live such an extraordinary life. There's something behind it. And in verse 24, we get to see what the force was behind Paul's life when he says, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So this begs the question, what is it about grace that would cause a man to live this way, to lean into discomfort? How did grace transform Paul from a bigoted religious zealot and persecutor of Christians to become the greatest missionary in the history of Christianity? And of all people to the Gentiles, people in his former way of life he wouldn't have associated with. Before we define grace and go deeper with it, let's first talk about what grace is not, especially since this word, as I mentioned before, has sort of lost some of its luster over the years with the way it's used. In fact, if an Egil Montoya from Princess Bride were here, he would say that. <laughs> I'm not good at the impersonation, but... Uh, <laughs> grace is not a mere, a mere starter's kit for beginners something we grow out of or graduate from. Grace is not merely an insurance plan, although it comes with rock-solid assurance. Grace is not patchwork for the cracks in our lives, the makeup kit or the spackle for the, the walls in your house or something you keep in a little tube in case of emergencies like a tide stick. Grace is not a distant doctrine signed into effect by an aloof God who wasn't paying attention and then realize he needed to make an amendment or two and balance this thing out, and throw in some, you know, I, you need to do this, that, and the other because grace might run amok. Grace is not a benign entity, something we can manipulate in a detached kind of manner, like a tax loophole or that big jar of candy that says take one and no one's around. There's only like five of you that laugh, but I know there's more people guilty than that. I'm raising my hand. Grace is not God's plan B. Because creation just went haywire. He, no point has God been pacing back and forth, wringing his hands together, saying, how am I going to get out of this one? What have I done? In fact, in Ephesians, a letter Paul writes to this church later as he travels to Jerusalem. He says, before the foundations of the world, I saw you in Christ. God saw you in Christ. Before the foundations of the world, God was thinking about you, thinking of family. And his life, because he gives us choice, because love demands that we choose. He allows us in this life to choose, but he pursues us with his love, even in our brokenness and rebellion and our desire to want to have self-mastery and an independence, he reaches to us with his love, and God is a gatherer. His dream is for one family, one place, in a just and productive society that lives together. And this is his dream. It still is, and it will be accomplished one day as every tongue, tribe, and nation will gather. In Titus, Paul writes this. He says... To one of his mentees there, he gives us kind of what's underneath grace. 
He says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This is a little bit more than just abstract, undeserved favor. It is that, undeserved favor. But this is telling us that grace comes to us personally in Christ. Grace appeared. And it even says this present age. God has always been gracious. He doesn't change. He's never inconsistent with himself as we are. Who he is is who he is. What he does is what he does. And they're never incongruent. But there was a time where grace came. And we live in that age of grace, as if we had an inheritance, but we couldn't do anything with it for a period of time. We had to be under a steward, and we've become, we've become of age, and God has lavished his grace upon us in the person of Jesus Christ. And it says that it teaches us. That means it's an abiding presence, not something we get, not the past that says, I'm, I'm a grace carrier, we move on. It is a living and abiding presence of Jesus Christ. We could define grace this way. Grace is the love of God delivered to us through the person of Christ as a free gift. That word Christ, that name, there's so much to it. All of his work, he is the representative of humanity and he exchanges your rags and gives you his riches. It confronts us to put down our own resume because his standard is perfection, but being the perfect man, he offers you his resume, his credit, and to live from the confidence that all that he brings. I want you to know that God, for some of you here today, no doubt, God wants to give you a new reason to try and reorient your whole life, a better way to live, a new reason to wake up. For others, it may be that God wants to renew this incredible reality and truth and move you back to where your life is positioned firmly upon this sure foundation. The main thrust of the message today is simply this. As you go deeper in grace, you will grow deeper in love. Love begins to usurp fear as your new reason to try as this happens. Paul was once lived a fearful life trying to dictate his outcomes to God. Anybody ever done that? I'm the only one, okay. <laughs> Trying to appease God, assuage your own guilt. Maybe you feel like you've messed up, so I'm gonna serve a little extra this week and somehow that's gonna balance the scale. I'm talking to Christians. I know that people do this outside of Christ because every religion out there is how to ascend. Christianity is God came. He stoops, he reaches and then he lifts. Sometimes we try to manipulate God for blessings. And then when they don't happen, the enemy slides in and says, well, you see, maybe God's not as good as what you think. Grace reoriented Paul to live continually in a posture of reception and response. When writing to the Christians in Rome, he said this, and this is a former jihadist, so just think of how unusual this would be to hear these words from someone like him. For we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is Greek word for daddy 
or for my Korean friends, Appa. And I don't know that because of anyone here. I know that because I, I like the show Kim's Convenience. <laughs> we can learn a lot from children though, right? I mean, if you just watch how they live, how they move, the swagger of the Metro kids is mind-boggling. I love it. I love just watching them, just how they're bouncing around and they have this confidence because they're near their parents or they've come out of a classroom where the teaching's been so great. The creativity is just exploding out of them. And, and they just have this look, like they can, they can almost do anything. Look what I made, look what I did. It's a beautiful thing to watch and we're told to receive the kingdom of God like a child. I used to think my son was too cocky when he was five years old. This kid was so confident. I mean, he would talk to the players on my team and explain to them some of the anatomy of the body. He was studying bones and they're like, I don't think that's right. Like, no, it is. It's right here. You know, he just like this old soul. And I, went, I asked my dad when he was living and, and asked him if, uh, you know, should I bring him down a notch? Like, is this going to be a problem? And he's like, school of hard knocks takes care of all that, man. Just let him go. Let him go a little bit. We can learn a lot from children by how they live. You see, kids don't have the responsibility that parents do, right? They're free. They live in a posture of dependence and reception. And with all that taken care of, man, they just go with the flow. Not sometimes they need the correction. That's, of course, part of what parenting is and how God guides and disciplines. And we often think of discipline as punishment. But you know, when you prune, and in, in, if you read about the vine and the branches, that pruning happens when your life is already fruitful. God wants to make you more fruitful. Sometimes discipline is your training. So kids teach us a lot. We're exhorted to receive the kingdom of God as a child. When we take the role of parent with God in our relationship with God, our lives become dysfunctional, unmanageable, the stress. I went through this recently. I'm going through new job syndrome. And the honeymoon ended. And I was at a Wednesday at the well when it was just worship, and the Lord said to me, I don't need you. And that sounds harsh, right? But it really wasn't, because it was the voice and the picture of a God almost with his arm around me, like a best friend or something, like, you realize I make the increase, I do these things, and it just took me out of myself, and the weight of the world left my shoulders, and once again, God reminded me and brought me back. We are derivative creatures made to live by the supply of God and live in overflow of his love. Look real quickly, I wanna go just real fast, just mention some things. But look at the love-inspired actions of Paul. This is not a guy, you know, I used to live by self-preservation, which that kind of motivation will do just enough to quell the threat, just enough to get the credit, just enough to look good and get out. But this is a man going way beyond. Fear will get results. Love runs through walls. And here we see in verse 20, Paul did whatever would benefit the fellowship. He went house to house, emotionally investing in them. He wasn't just a perfunctory thing he had to do, like a job that you don't want to be at. He was invested. He became impartial as God transformed his life. This was a racist, a man 
didn't view other people outside of his world in a favorable light. And he became impartial. He called out his Jewish brethren when they tried to add their works to this gospel of grace or their culture to it. And he said, no, the gospel transforms culture. The gospel shines through culture. And with the Greeks and the pagans, he just, they didn't understand what it was to live a spiritual life. They were sensual people. They learned and lived taking their cues from the outside world with their five senses. And he says, no, you now a new creation as Pastor Sunita prayed. You're a new creation in Christ. You're new. You're not the same anymore. You're born of God's spirit. And he's teaching them to learn to live from the inside out. Paul went to Jerusalem because he was compelled by love, not selfishness. He did not covet. He didn't use people for personal gain. As the gospel goes deeper, our vision of life becomes clearer. We begin to open our arms to include and make room for other people. There's going to be a chance for prayer and fasting as a next step. I think it might be fitting for this church after 15 years to stop and pause and just ask, God, what are you doing among us? What are you doing? What are you asking of us? What are you asking of me? Because if we don't get this right, we'll just run into a bunch of activity and maybe fall on our face, but even if we don't, it won't be the work that will last. But if we step into whatever it is God wants to do here, and we know it includes other people, we know it includes the expansion of his kingdom of grace to bring people back, he's gathering family. But when we, when we step into what God's doing, his plan, not ours, we get to live by all of heaven's resources for whatever that is. When you step into the current, into the river of God's spirit, there is movement that takes us. And the resources are there. We're, we're not dependent on what we have in our pockets, in our minds, in our grit. We live with a new reason to try because when we know we live in the favor of God and his movement, we have everything at our disposal to meet the task. Pray, prayer and fasting is really where it will begin. It's just a way of saying, God, this is you, not us. Grace gives the glory to God. It gives all the glory to God. Religion looks at you. And from beginning to end, this is about God's goodness, God's grace, and his desire. And we are participants in what God's doing. But it's easy to wander from the foundation of grace. Anybody know about that? Not just because of sin that we think about, egregious sins and those kind of things, but our self-righteousness moves us just as much. We can vacillate to either extreme, so when we feel like we're doing good, the enemy says, man, you deserve more. Again, the enemy can play with that. We can start to think that that wasn't God's not good or self-condemnation when we fail. To keep, anything to keep us away. There's three, w, three things that keep us Three W's, the world, our wounds, and the wily one are always a threat to move us off of this foundation of grace. The world just operates on self-effort. Humanistic, good old-fashioned, pull your boots up. Well, how's that go? Pull your boots up by the bootstraps? I don't know. I'm, I, you, I think you know what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> This is how I coach with my teams, and they would laugh at me often, you know. I just would invent words if I didn't know them. 
If you're serving at Metro in any capacity because you believe it will make God happier with you and make your life easier or you'll earn something, approval, you already have all of that. You have his favor, his approval, his rejoicing over your life, and he wants you to live with a new reason to try, a new reason behind everything that you do. But it's not just the world. Our wounds speak loudly, don't they? Oh, we project onto God how we feel about ourselves so easily. Brendan Manning was a Catholic priest, but also an alcoholic. And then the grace of God exploded on his life, turned it all upside down, reoriented him. And he said this, we unwittingly project onto God our own attitudes and feelings toward ourselves. But we cannot assume that he feels about us the way we feel about ourselves, unless we love ourselves compassionately, intensely, and freely. The wily one, the enemy of our souls. He's not always coming at you with the horns, you know, giving you notice. It's the subtle suggestions that he makes, seeking your agreement. In basketball, we used to have, uh, well, they shoot a lot of three-point shots now. But we used to teach our big guys to get as close to the basket as possible, get position, get your man behind you. So if you could catch, make an easy score. But on defense... I taught the exact opposite, that you had to root that man off that sweet spot where he could be effective with the ball and win the real estate, so to speak. Move them away, use your leverage, but don't let them catch the ball there. The enemy is going to do anything and everything to move you from this foundation of grace. And again, I'm speaking to believers. And it's easy to vacillate into our self-righteousness that teaches us we have earned something. You ever been in an airplane? You know, the buildings below, they all look the same size, right? God's standard is perfection. So we look here and we think some are good Christians. Our, our righteousness is rags, but he's given us the gift of his and it allows us to prosper. In him, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so though the enemy might bark, we need to keep ourselves centered. So how do, what's the prevention for this drifting off of the foundation? Simply put, a steady diet of grace is how we stay strong and fruitful. Verse 32 really gives the key when he says, to build yourselves up. He goes, I commit to you, you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance. Ways we can do that are simply this, to meditate on Christ and his commitment to you. Because when you look at Christ, not yourself, you realize that his life and his credit is yours. When you make it about yourself, we fall into anxiety and angst. It's not a sure foundation. So we need to keep feeding. Charles Spurgeon was one of the great preachers of the 18th century. He was called the Prince of Preachers. He wrote more sermons than anybody. And he said, just to get out of bed, I have to preach the gospel to myself every morning. This is clearly not how we just begin. This is how we grow. This is how we prosper in life. God will take you further. You'll learn more. You'll understand your gifts. I'm not advocating that nothing else matters. But it never is that our sanctification grows out of our justification, out of the goodness and grace of God. It never leaves. And if it does... 
of any leader that takes it to another place of a secret knowledge or something extra seven steps that'll get you to prosper. It's not the gospel. Look what the gospel has done over these years and centuries since Paul. It prospers when it's given freely, fully, undiluted, no additives, straight up, Jesus. Participate in fellowship. Pastor Clay preached so well last Sunday about encouragement. We need encouragement. We need to, this early church under persecution, bonded together. They encouraged one another, spoke scripture and hymns and sang to one another, sang together, shared what they had so everybody was okay. And without it, we, we're not going to, you're not going to handle what's out there in the world and all the forces that are working against you. And lastly, reflect. I don't know of any antidote that's helped me more because when I start to wonder how I can do it or it's too hard, I simply have to pause and remember God's faithfulness in my life. And God's not faithful like we are once in a while. He's faithful. His character. He's trustworthy. And faith is hard. Bible scriptures say we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not because it's unsure, it's because life is hard. Faith takes some grit. Sometimes we soar like eagles. Sometimes we're trying to run and not faint. And there's other times we're trying to walk and not fall down. But in all of those seasons of life, God is the same. Yesterday, today, forever. His power remains. His goodness is grace to us. In closing, my dad had a home office when uh, we were growing up, which is unusual. That's normal now, but it wasn't back then. And the reason is he was the district superintendent of the Christian Missionary Alliance for the metropolitan area. So I lived in New Jersey once when I was a kid. And so I got to travel on Sundays to different churches in New Jersey and New York City, got to experience uh, different kinds of food and cultures and Mostly in ethnic churches, it was first generation, so there was a translator. But they were great experiences. But on the weekday, he was home in his office. And it was so funny to us kids, all my brothers and sisters, because the pastors and the people that were under him would come to the door, and they were just completely frozen with fear. My dad was, you know, just seemed so odd. Like, why is everybody so uptight? Is the Reverend Mr. Bailey home, please. And my dad would warn us not to get to the door first, but we always thought it was a friend, so we never paid attention. So we just go, hey, what do you want? And he'd be like, hello there, your father is a great godly man, you know. And we're like, yeah, but, you see, we didn't do life with dad in the office. We did life with our dad in the living room. For some of you, it might even be Worse than that, it was for me one time. I was doing life with God in the courtroom, always on trial, always wondering if I've done enough, never sure. And God's invitation is to you today is that he wants to do life with you in the living room. Jesus is God's emphatic verdict about you, the ultimate value statement. You didn't become valuable at the cross, it was your value that took Jesus there. That's hard to get your head around, but you are and I together, we as his church are his inheritance.
See, it doesn't begin with the fall and our rottenness and our bad choices that we were grafted in to the first Adam. He's become the second Adam, yes. But it begins with our belovedness in the mind of God and his desire to redeem everything in the innocence within you to get his kids back. And this is the great story of God. Nothing has changed my life more than this discovery. For me, the beginning of the end of my self-destruction was in a bar years ago. As I drank despondently, the Lord spoke to me out of nowhere, and I hadn't been in a church for a while. And he said, not audibly, but to my heart so clearly, profoundly. You know, you think you check me at the door, but I'm always with you. I mean, this is a God who entered into the fray of humanity, so I don't know why that was hard for me to conceive. He says, and, and, and if you really want to self-destruct, I'm going to love you to the end. And I'll be here right with you. But if you'll take my hand and you'll trust me, I'm going to show you things about me that you never knew. And that was the beginning of the end for me. My life didn't change lickety-split, but it was the day I stopped running away and distancing myself and masking myself and I began to turn into God. I began to lean in. And as I went deeper in his grace, my life began to be transformed. I didn't do it. He just began to change desires and thoughts, a love for reading and writing, desire to do things that used to be just perfunctory duties, things to check my box became an outpouring, a compelling of love. I still tripped and stumbled, but I heard a different voice of the comforter, the Holy Spirit, that's pointing us always to Jesus. That other voice ain't Jesus, he's masquerading as him. Our transformation begins, not as we try harder, but as we draw nearer, because no one who draws nearer ever remains the same. Father, will you let this word marinate within us in such a way that it would grow deep roots in our lives and in the fertile soil of your goodness and grace that our lives would grow, that they would become wildly fruitful, thrilling our souls, nourishing the world around us and bringing glory to you and your great grace for us. Lord, we acknowledge today that we are not the dictators or the initiators, but we are made in your likeness to receive all of your provision and supply. And so Lord, will you help us to drink deeply and grace to come with this access that you say that we can come boldly as a child would to a, a father, a child who's confident of his father's love. That this would be become the modus operandi for us and we would leave the shallow waters of human effort and the sinking sand of self-condemnation and we would stay firmly upon the good soil and Lord would you prosper this church as we go deeper that our arms would go wider that we would begin to choose into uncomfortability for the sake of others and find the joy of the Lord in that process thank you for what you've done in bringing this church, this, your bride, for your presence.
But Lord, now as we face new days, we ask you again, Lord, lead us. We're in a posture of response, posture of reception. Help us to respond well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have one of these cards here, Next Steps. If you want to take a look at it for a minute before we finish with worship today. If this is the first time you've really heard this message or heard it in a way where you realize that there's nothing you bring to the table, that God's grace says you can come as you are. And by putting your trust in Jesus, you can become a child of God today. Check that box so that we can support you in that journey. Also, for those of you that are in the journey, God's calling you to go a little deeper. Would you meditate on the good news of God's grace at least five minutes a day? Maybe five minutes at night, five minutes morning, during your lunchtime. But take take some time to consider God's commitment to you and his finished work that gives you your assurance. And if you would, would you consider pray prayerfully to sign up for the, fat, the prayer and fast in August, to skip something, a meal or something, but to put yourself in a posture before the Lord of reception. Lord, what are you doing here in Metro? What are you doing in my life? What are you asking of us? What are you asking of me? This is where it begins. This is the good stuff because God's not confused. <laughs> He's going to speak to us. And he's going to give us an unusual strategy. It might not go exactly the way we think, but God's going to prosper all of his plans. Begins on our knees. And if you would be willing not to serve the church because you think it's checking a box, but if there's a way you can help us with setup, we're a little short. And this might be a way that you can just respond in worship to the Lord and gratitude for everything he's done for you. Please check that box. And let's keep this journey in Acts going. Read through Acts chapter 21, 1 through 16.